Hello, my name is Ben Oden. I'm an author, capacity building and leadership development trainer. Each week, Mimi, pamoja na viongozi mbalimbali who will be featured on this podcast, will bring you leadership principles, stories and philosophies that if applied will elevate you into a position of more influence among those you lead and those who lead you. I hope you are doing well. Welcome to another episode of the Why Lead Others podcast. I am your host, Ben Oden. For those of you who are joining us for the very first time today, um, the Why Lead Others podcast is a podcast that aims at challenging your thinking so as to elevate your thought and approach as a leader. Now, today we are joined uh, by a very special guest in the building. Her name is Dr. Edith Buana. She is a mother of five going to seven. She is a wife, a business owner in the sector of early childhood development, and she is also an educator at the university level. Now, she has people at the starting line and at the finish line of both of formal education. Dr. Edith Karibusana. Thank you. Hi, Ben. Now, today we'll be talking about a couple of things um, that I think are interesting and things that I know that will challenge your thinking as a leader. And as a result, we hope that you will elevate your thought and approach. Now, to begin with, um, I would like to talk about, since you work in education, I would like to talk about the relationship between uh, learning and leadership development. Uh, because I think uh, JFK is famously known for saying um, leadership and learning are indispensable from each other. Um, so, learning and leadership seem to have a relationship. So what do you think um, does learning and you know, knowing that you teach literature at the higher level, what role does literature um, and learning play in the development uh, of someone's leadership capacity? Well, you know, the good thing about literature is that it's not fixed to one field or it's not fixed to one subject. When you do literature, basically you're doing politics, you're doing economics, you're doing art, you're doing history, you're doing geography, because all these things make up good literature. So um, it actually indirectly forces you or allows you to learn different things from different fields when, you know, dealing with a, with a good literature, with a good piece of literature. Um, and ba- because basically literature is a mirror to the world and it reflects the world. So authors write to contemplate their thoughts on what is happening in society. And at the same time, as a reader, when you read a book, it shapes how you think about society. And as a good leader, literature can give you great values or great insight into the values, into the way of thinking, into the way of doing things of a particular society. And that is always a good starting point. And what are some of the books that uh, have helped you, uh, I guess, uh, develop your thinking as a leader, um, whether in the classroom or you know, in your personal life and in your business as well? First of all, I don't know if I would call myself a leader. That's, you know, that's a big title. Um, You know, I love education and I love imparting knowledge, but to lead, no, it's more to share and to give. Um, I think I have two books that have really shaped how I think. One of them is The Time of Our Singing, written by Richard Powers. And it deals with um, the African-American society, of course, um, 
racial issues and things like that. But that is not the part that influenced me the most. Uh, what I found fascinating is that you have siblings from the same family faced with the same um, challenges in society, uh, the same prejudices, um, the same hardships, yet they all make different choices and they all turn out differently and they all lead completely different lives. Mm. And for me, this is, um, it's a sign that even if you are faced with hardships, even if life is tough, it doesn't mean that we all should just submit and succumb somehow. We always have a choice and the choices we make will affect how we live our lives. We should not just simply say, oh, that's how the situation was like. There are always choices to make. Mm. Um, and the second one, it's actually a children's book um, called Oscar and the Pink Lady. And it's about a little boy who is suffering from leukemia. He's basically dying. He has, I think, 11 days to live or something like that. But he is so positive. And in those 11 days, each day it's like he's first in his teens, then he's in his 20s, in his 30s, 40s. You know, he lives life or his life in, in those 10 days, always positive and looking for the best outcome. And he's, he's basically dying, yet in the midst of that suffering, he manages to remain positive. So even if we are faced with challenges, we have that option of remaining positive and looking at the best in life. So those are the two that have really influenced how I perceive life. Uh, I, like, I like the first one when you said, you know, the whole aspect of uh, choice and choosing. Uh, there's a book by Mark Manson. Uh, I think the subtle art of not giving, and then there's a curse word uh, where you know he talks about in, somewhere in, along the in the book where he talks about this philosophy of responsibility. That at the end of the day, uh, where you end up is purely based on the choices you make along the way, not so much your circumstances, but what you choose to do uh, in the midst of your circumstances. So I think, and, and I agree that you know for leaders um, who are listening, uh, even right now with. COVID, um, it's happening to the rest, all of us. Um, but different people are making different choices. You have, you know, other leaders who are choosing uh, path A, and then you have someone else who's choosing path B. And I think what happens to us or where we end up is purely based on the choices we make rather than the circumstances we're in. I like you said, it's a family sharing the same circumstances, parents, everything. Um, so they're having the same, I guess, the same hurdles to, exactly. to overcome, yet but they're each having different one experiences it. because of the choices yes, that exactly. they make. Yeah, so, so and I think that's crucial for leaders as well. It's not so much your circumstances, but rather the choices. And with the uh, second book that you said, how you see the world, I guess your perspective, and you know, do you react um, with you know a defeat mindset or do you react with a positive uh, mindset? Now, beyond just um, teaching at the university, I also know that you are a business owner. Uh, you started business, but of course it's within the same industry of education, um, which is, you started a preschool called Twinkle Tots. Now, I want us to, I want you to, you know, I want us to talk about your journey. Like how, how did you start? First of all, why did you start a preschool? Okay, simply, it's really simple actually. Uh, I love kids and I love teaching. And when you work at the university, as much as I love working at the university, 
um, sometimes you don't have access to students and the one-on-one -on -one contact that I really love. And actually watching a child learn how to read, watching a child learn, you know, to talk, to articulate, to be confident, um, to get ready for going to class one, that, that's just my passion. Um, and I have always wanted to do that. And so when I was doing my PhD, um, and I, ha I had four years at home, um, I decided to, to turn that passion into reality and um, decided to open a preschool. And I mean, I just started with one child. Um, her name was Angel, or is Angel. She's now in class two. Um, and yeah, we started from there, one step at a time. Now, um, in our personal conversation, you uh, have shared with me that your passion was fueled by an actual problem that you saw in the industry. You saw there's a gap, um, you know, of the services that are being delivered, where, you know, on one extreme, you have your international schools, uh, you know, which are ridiculously expensive. And then on another extreme, you have um, schools, you know, that some people are consider, you know, to be of a poor quality uh, education. And then here in the middle where, you know, many of us can actually afford to send our children to these schools, there is a big gap. So, you know, the type of education many of us can afford, um, there aren't many options right here in the middle. And I, and this is where you thought you could, uh, you know, meet the need and um, solve a problem for parents who can't afford to send their kids to the, you know, um, highly expensive schools, but at the same time, uh, they would prefer, you know, to not send their children into schools they can afford, but at the same time, they don't necessarily offer um, the good quality of education. So can you speak on that a little bit? I don't know if I would call it poor quality education. Nowadays, you know, there are a lot of Nectar schools that follow the Montessori approach, yeah. uh, which is, of course, more hands-on. But uh, one of the problems that I saw was that many of the preschools were overcrowded mm. and focused on the daycare aspect rather than the preschool aspect. So, you know, children were there just to be away from home rather, as, rather than it being like the first building step towards their education. And then at some point they crammed how to read and to write rather than to understand why words, why numbers work in a certain way. And in those schools that had smaller classes, and many Nectar schools unfortunately have large amount of children, um, and in the schools, of course, that had smaller classes, then, um, of course, they were international schools and the fees were, were much higher. And I wanted to do something that gave both quality education or the first building step for these children, um, yet at the same time affordable for a normal parent, uh, a normal working parent. I like that. I think in, in, what is it, in business or entrepreneurship, they always say that start a business that is solving an actual problem. Um, you know, for any business to be sustainable, it has to be a, a business that is solving an actual problem that exists uh, within the community uh, you're living in. So I like the fact that you were targeting a very specific crowd uh, that you knew had a problem and they were seeking a solution, but there weren't as many players um, offering that solution and you positioned yourself as that 
person. Now, so you went from having, you know, starting this preschool with one student. Uh, I know that you have four classes. Um, the school has four levels. Um, so how did you go from having one student to having four classes that were full of students? How did you go? And how did you go from one to, I guess, four full classrooms? And at the same time, what uh, lessons have you learned in this, on this journey? Uh, because I'm sure there's somebody out there who, you know, they just started their business. Maybe they only have one customer. Maybe they don't even, they don't even have a client. And, you know, they're thinking of giving up. They don't know what to do. You know, is, it, is this a sign that I should just quit and, you know, uh, throw in the towel? Uh, so maybe can you tell us about your journey and the major lessons that you've learned along the way? Um, okay, that's a lot of questions at once. Um, it took time. And it's difficult and it's not easy and you do feel like giving up. You know, when you have one student for half a year, uh, day in, day out, and you see no change, you you want to give up um, because as well you're not making a profit. You're actually making losses running uh, a school for just one child. But that one child is already an ambassador for the school. They go out or and they talk to other children and other parents ask you know, the, the child's parent, hey, where does your child go to school? They, they talk, they articulate, they're confident. Um, and, you know, that is how the reputation of a school grows. So slowly, slowly, one child by one child, you know, the school filled up. And I cannot say that it was an easy journey. There are many times along the way where, you know, I had to reinvest into the school. It was not that you invest once and then it picks up and, you know, you, you're making a profit. Um, it was a constant reinvestment. I think the first uh, profit somehow I made was after two and a half years, almost three years. So it took, it took a lot of time. And so if, you know, business takes time, um, setting up your own thing takes time and you should not give up. If it is your dream, your passion, and it's something that you know you want to do and you're willing to invest and ready to invest in it, you should not give up. You should just keep trying, even though the beginning is very difficult. Uh, I, I, like, I like what you said. I mean, you know, just focus on the one. If you have one client, focus on the one. Make sure that you meet all of their needs, you solve all of their problems, and there will be your marketing or salesperson who's going to go out there and... Um, sell your brand or your product or your service to other people so so especially for schools you know um you can you can make posters you can do flyers you can do instagram and whatsapp and whatever else but the actual advertisement for a school is actually your students um the better they perform or you know the more that they're able to do the better the advertisement for your school so focus on the client and not just, you know, the branding aspect of uh, your business. Um, as long as you meet the client's uh, needs, uh, you should be okay. The word will get out. People will know about your business. Now, we know that uh, we live in a world where, you know, people are driven by money, especially when you talk about careers, you know. Uh, everyone wants to get, you know, paid more than they are currently being paid. People want salary, salary increases. People want promotions. Uh, so, but then you're running a business in an industry that is not as lucrative as other industries. Uh, the education sector is not as lucrative as, you know, the banking sector or um, the NGO sector or other sectors. So it's not as lucrative financially. But at the same time, 
you need to have people who are performing at a high level so that they can add value to your clients, which are the kids and their parents. So how did you manage this pressure? Well, here you have a team of people who, whether spoken or unspoken, you know have a high expectation in terms of what to be paid. At the same time, you have purposed to deliver a service, um, an affordable service to a particular group of people. So you can't just go every day and say, you know what, okay, now the fees were, you know, uh, amount X, and then now we have increased it to amount Y. So you, you don't really have that uh, luxury of doing that. Uh, because again, you came into the business because you were trying to solve a problem for a particular crowd uh, and changing the pricing model will basically now be shifting the business from, you know, uh, meeting uh, the needs of one particular crowd to another one. So that may not necessarily be an option. But at the same time, you have people who, again, spoken or unspoken, have certain expectations. You know, they're focused on building their careers. So first of all, did you have this problem with your staff? And if you did, how did you manage and how did you handle this conflict between the two? Um, the good thing is that I have a very good team, a very good and understanding team. And most of the people who are there, we started together right from the beginning. They saw the struggle um, they saw the hardships that the school went through. And of course, as the school grew, it was easier for me as well to, to give them a salary increase, to give them additional benefits. Um, but as well, I think that loyalty that comes from being together from day one and struggling together from day one, that really helped uh, in in solving this problem of yeah finding a balance between being able to keep the prices affordable and yet being able to accommodate the salaries of and and extra benefits of the teachers but it was not always easy and there are times when for example the the bigger kids all left for class 1 and there was a drop in 10 10 12 kids that is felt financially. And those are the times that I had to reinvest personally into the school because when kids leave, I cannot tell my staff then that, hey, I'm sorry, now we don't have, you know, the, the same amount of salary, so I'm going to reduce it. Uh, but those are the times then I had to personally reinvest until the school picked up again and filled those spaces. So it was, it's always been a balancing act. So, I mean, I like that because, you know, you one, uh, you need to have a staff that has bought into the vision, people who understand why uh, you started, people who will ride with you through, I guess, you know, the ups and the downs. But at the same time, you don't want to take advantage of that loyalty uh, by, you know, making sure that their employment and their salary, um, I guess, payables are, you know, volatile where, you know, today uh, you hit uh, your income is affected, then you change, you know, um, their salaries. So you don't want to take advantage of the loyalty. You know, you want to make sure that it's consistent. Um, and if you as a leader have to take uh, a hit, then you do what you have to do. Um, I like that because I think in um, if, historically, when you study a lot of leaders, whether it's, you know, in the political sector or uh, in the corporate sector, um, some of the great leaders are always people who will take the heat, will take the bullet for their people. Um, not necessarily the leader who would always throw somebody else under the bus, people who, you know, would be so quick uh, to make sure that everybody else uh, takes the heat, everybody else carries the load, but themselves. 
So I like that, you know, that aspect of one, make sure that your team has bought into your vision so that when, you know, uh, the company does not necessarily perform as expected, they will still be loyal to the brand and the corporation. But at the same time, don't take advantage of their loyalty. If you can take the heat, take the heat as a leader. Yeah, and that's also vital because actually you're you're the owner of the school and um, you are the one who has invested in the school, but in order or in the business, but in order actually to make things work, you need loyal workers or you need loyal people behind you. It's things like a business like a school is not uh, a sole project. It's not that you're locking yourself up in a room and then working on a computer and your own determination depends the outcome. It's actually a teamwork. And um, if you alienate those that work for you or who, which, those who you work together with, um, it can impact the, the success of your business. So yes, you have to be owner, you have to, you have to be a leader, you, you, know, you have to play boss sometimes, but um, creating a friendly working environment that those around you feel comfortable to approach you with any problems, feel even comfortable to joke with you sometimes, makes working together as a group easier. It also creates loyalty. Um, and it gives them as well that freedom to to reach their potential rather than than working in, a, in an environment of fear that, oh, the boss is coming. I don't know what's going to happen, you know. Yeah, I like that. Uh, what is it? Creating a psychologically safe environment uh, where people, you know, can be creative, people can speak out their minds. And I think even uh, creative ideas come when people are comfortable and relaxed in an environment rather than constantly wondering, will I be criticized? You know, what will they think of me and such? Um, in your journey, I'm sure there have been uh, failures because um, you were doing this for the very first time. Now, in those failures, what were the major lessons that you learned? Um, <laughs> that's a very good question. Um, I think... One of the most difficult lessons has been, um, again, finding that balance between playing boss and, you know, having a friendly working atmosphere because you want to create a friendly working atmosphere, but it does not mean that it will not be abused. Um, there are times, of course, when borders were crossed and uh, people took for granted that um, it's a friendly working atmosphere. So creating, again, a balance after such incidences was not easy. Um, similarly, uh, maintaining a balance, like a professional balance to parents or between parents and teachers um, was also sometimes a challenge. You know, if a child has been in the school for four years, you kind of create friendships with parents outside the school. And, um, you know, friendships, you sit outside the school, you talk. Sometimes things come out that shouldn't come out. So it's very necessary to maintain like a professional relationship and boundaries between what goes on behind the door of your business and the things that you share with your clients. You know, if you're having a problem, 
it, the, the client is not the person to approach your problem with or to, you know. Um, so such kind of boundaries, balancing act, I think that that was the most difficult. Interesting. Because um, it is true because, you know, even I guess in business classes, um, people are encouraged, you know, to create, to build relationships with their clients. Um, in fact, there's even a phenomenon called relationship marketing where, you know, just uh, bank on your relationships to, uh, to build your marketing strategy. So relationships play a key role into the success of business and client retention. But at the same time, like you said, there's this uh, thin line, uh, you know, between this relationship being a functioning relationship to it being, I guess, an abused relationship because, you know, it doesn't necessarily lead to the results that you want where now either you're too involved in your client's life or they are too involved in yours or even your business. And, you know, so then there's this, you know, you step on these muddy waters, so to speak. And, and I think it's, it's hard to draw a line where exactly what's too much or what's not. Um, but, I, but, but I'm sure many business owners out there can relate to that because again, especially for entrepreneurs, you know, for well-established businesses, it's a lot easier, but I think for people who are building, uh, who are in the earlier stages of building their businesses where, you know, you, Literally, your strongest asset is your relationships with people. Um, your strongest asset is, you know, because you don't have the budget to market your company um, on a, you know, a large scale. You don't really have those resources. So all you're depending on is your relationships. Uh, and I think sometimes there, you know, we tend to overstep um, and uh, miss, I guess, the whole point of relationship marketing or, you know, using your relationships to scale and grow um, your clientele. Uh, so that is the failure aspect. Now, what are some of the things you've learned from your victories? Because, you know, you just shared with us, you know, something that you've learned uh, through failure. But what are some of the things that you've learned through victory? Something that you were, you did right and you're like, whoa, okay, I will definitely uh, turn this into, you know, um, I guess some common practices in my approach to running the business. Um, I think one of the most important things I've learned um, is that we place too much emphasis on certification and paper documentation. Mm -hmm. You know, if um, if a teacher comes with uh, first class grades and, you know, leaving certificate, um, they're more likely to be hired than those who who didn't or maybe don't even have a training. And in the past five years now, I have realized that actually people have potential beyond uh, what is on paper, beyond their yeah, university or um, college certification. And um, as, as an owner of a school, as a leader, as you call it, um, one of the most important things is to look for the potential beyond that certification. Um, I had a, I had a teacher come in who started off just as a child minder, not in the classroom. And with time, I realized that she has she's actually extremely creative. Uh, she's musically talented. She's artistically talented, and the kids love her. And she, um, in the meantime, she also had a child, and um, was really good with the babies, and so. With time, she grew to take over the baby class, um, but she does not have certification. She does not have certification for those qualities that she carries. 
Um, and so I think that those are one of the most important th lessons that I've learned to look beyond mere paper qualities. I like that. So, so now for, for some people, that's a bit hard uh, because, you know, the, on one side, there are people who believe that you need to establish, draw a line, you know, or, you know, what this is the starting point. This is where we start, you know, so entry level, even many jobs, you know, they say, you know what, we only accept someone who has a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. Um, and, you know, and, and that's how people, you know, I guess, uh, vet other people and say, you know what, uh, the door will only be opened for this group of people. And then once these people are inside, then we can look at your potential and everything else. So there are people who believe in that approach. And then, of course, there's the other side of people like yourself who say, you know what, let's throw, throw the paper away. And of course, which is ironic coming from someone who teaches at the university level. Um, so maybe you know something that the rest of us don't know. Um, exactly. And someone who, asks, who also happens to have a PhD. So it's, again, ironic to hear you say that so what do you know that we don't know that you actually prefer that approach of focusing on the potential people have rather than focusing explicitly on the uh, certificates? Now, I'm only going to talk from the education perspective here. Um, teachers are born, not made. Mm. Um, you can have a PhD and be a horrible teacher simply because it is not an inborn trait. It is not something that you're able to do, you know, uh, acquiring knowledge and transmitting knowledge are two completely different things. And that is why sometimes um, in the field of education, you can have really highly qualified teachers who uh, lack classroom management, who lack knowledge transference skills, simply because it is not part of their nature. It is not part of their ability. It's not a talent. And yet you have people like this lady I talked about who do not have certification for for what they can do. They it is inborn, they're they're good with kids, they're good at transferring knowledge, they're good at making children understand. Um, they can manage the class because they're able to um, put themselves in the level of the children and able to to tap into their learning strategies in order to make them understand. Uh, so in this case, like in the educational field, again, this fine balance, because yes, you need a certificate of sorts in order to get employed, in order to prove that you have done ABC that qualifies you to take this job. At the same time, I think we should also be open-minded to um, those who might not be certified yet have skills and have a talent at working with and within the educational system. I like that. Uh, so you said that one is that, you know, your business needs to solve an actual problem that exists and that's how you got into your business. So that's the first thing, you know, uh, the vision has to be a so solution to a problem that exists not a problem that you have assumed uh, exists, but an actual problem. And then, of course, many businesses die because either, you know, they don't have clients or they only have one client. And um, that go that has gone, be, you know, against their expectations. And so people give up and quit. But then you said that focus on that client, focus on meeting the needs of that client, and uh, the rest will follow. And then you also said that... Um, 
in the earlier stages of your business, I guess, you know, even uh, later on, you need to establish boundaries with your clients. Um, you know, yes, build a relationship with your clients, but it's be- it, it, it's best to lead, to establish boundaries. Um, and then, you know, those boundaries will guide, I guess, the nature of that relationship moving forward. Um, and then now you just shared with us that, you know what, focus on the potential people have and not just the certificates. Um, and I think, of course, for people who are starting uh, businesses, many of them can't afford to hire um, quote-unquote top-notch people. Uh, by that, I mean, you know, people who, you know, are qualified on paper. Because these are people, you know, who, of course, they have certain expectations in terms of payment. And many startup businesses cannot afford those people. So maybe for people who are starting up, um, an eye for potential could be one of your greatest assets where you could see that, okay, this person has something that can bring to the table. And um, I will be, I guess, like a Mr. Miyagi or like, you know, a Yoda just guiding them uh, and, you know, filling in the gaps in their in, in their expertise and skill set uh, so that they can step up to what is required of them to fill in whatever role, you know, you have placed uh, them to do. So, so beyond these uh, five things, is there anything else you have learned in your journey as an educator and an entrepreneur? You have to love what you do. You have to love what you do. Yeah, because otherwise it's easier to give up. Um, if you're really passionate about what you do and you love what you do, I think that it will motivate you to keep going even when it's when the going gets tough. Um, if you if you're doing it for the money, of course, at the end of the day, we all want to make a living. We all, you know, we need money to to keep our families going. But um, you, if you're ready to be satisfied with a little less. To carry on what you love doing, uh, it's worth the sacrifice. So love is, I guess, what holds everything together um, for an entrepreneur. You know, if you don't love what you do, there is a high chance you might give up. If you're just doing it for the money, then, okay, of course, you can say you love money. And, you know, that is your passion to make money. That's something else. But if you're doing something like education and you're doing it for the money, then you're not doing the right thing or you're not in the right field. Um, something like education requires a passion for it, requires love for it, because that was what we, will keep you going. Your teachers will see the love for what you do and that will motivate them. Your students will see that you love what you do and that will motivate them. The parents will see what that you love what you do and that will keep them coming back to the school. So, yes. And it makes it worth waking up every morning to keep going to where, you know, and continuing with your business. I like that. I think I like I like that. Uh, I don't think I've ever looked at it that way, where, you know, your motivation has to align with the industry you're working in. Uh, you know, I guess for, you know, somebody who's in trading business, in the trading business, the love of money works because all you do is buy and sell. Um, there are no emotions involved um, but I think for people who are working in the, the area of education, or I'm guessing even medicine, you know, the d- love of money uh, does not necessarily sustain, um, you know, your career or your uh, journey as an entrepreneur. So I like that. I think, you know, people have to evaluate um, your emotional commitment towards what you are doing. And I think if they have not, it, if it, your emotional commitment is not aligned with the industry you are working or building your business in, then you need to sit back and rethink, um, you know, your approach and 
how you feel about what you do. Thank you so much, Edith, for joining us. Um, this has been a fruitful time, and I'm sure that to our listeners, they have definitely learned something. Um, I have already summarized some of the things that you have mentioned, and I'm sure you've encouraged someone out there. I'm sure there's somebody out there who will rethink their approach um, to what they are doing. Now, initially you denied, you're like, I am not a leader. Um, I hope that's your humility talking. But <laughs> here at Y Lead, we define a leader as anyone who influences others to take action. Um, and I think the field of education, you that's what you're constantly doing, whether directly or indirectly. You're, you're pushing people from point A to point B, and that requires them to actually take action, to choose to be willing to uh, progress and move forward. So, in this room, you are considered a leader, whether or not you consider yourself <laughs> a leader. And so thank you so much for your time. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you for taking the time to listen in. And um, like I said, I hope that um, our episode today has is going to challenge uh, your thinking. And um, that challenge will lead to an elevation of thought and approach in how you practice uh, your leadership in your area of influence. Thank you so much. And until next time, I am Ben Oden. This has been the Wildlead Others podcast brought to you by Wildlead Consultancy. Wildlead Consultancy is a capacity building firm that exists to build highly productive and innovative leaders. To reach us, go to www.wildleadothers.com.